right, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, hope you can hear me and uh, we are on. Uh, let me welcome you to the closing keynote conversation on the European Union's future and the uh, place in the world at this year's conference, Baltic EU Conversations. My name is Edis Bosch and I will be your moderator for the next hour. And it is my honor and privilege to welcome Jose Manuel Barroso to this uh, closing conversation. Mr. Barroso, let me check the connection whether we can hear one another well. You need to unmute your microphone. Uh, that'd be great. Could you unmute, unmute your microphone, please? Yes, now I'm in it, so I can hear you very well. Thank you. All right. Um, Mr. Barroso is, of course, the former two-term president of the European Commission and the former prime minister of Portugal. He is also currently chair of Gavi, uh, the Vaccine Alliance. I, um, I must say, Mr. Barroso, it is a bit of a challenge uh, to introduce you. Uh, your CV is not the thinnest uh, <laughs> I've seen, and it would take five minutes at least uh, if I was to introduce you properly. But uh, at the same time, I have the feeling that you don't need to be introduced to anyone who follows European politics. In any case, uh, thank you very much for, for uh, finding the time and, and joining us. Um, if you don't mind, I will start by uh, teasing our audience just a little bit, because I have the feeling that uh, most of our audience is in the Baltic states, and at least in Riga, uh, the view outside is just miserable. It's, it's something, it's snow or rain, and it's, it's horrible outside. What is it like in Lisbon outside uh, today? In Lisbon today, it's uh, 16 de degrees Celsius. <laughs> a nice spring time, <laughs> and, uh, I uh, Sometimes a bit sun, sometimes a bit of clouds. You will see probably if there is more light, it means the sun is coming. But very have, mild, very nice. I have, I have the feeling that uh, we all wish to be in Portugal these days. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think everyone is, is hungry to... Uh, to go outside and, and, and to enjoy uh, the beautiful weather of Portugal as well. So uh, how about that for, for a tease to our audience? But I think hopefully uh, in the next uh, six months or so, uh, the, the times will normalize and, and we can uh, travel to one another and meet one another face to face. Just one housekeeping announcement to our audience before we really begin. Uh, please keep your questions coming uh, using either the, the Zoom chat or the Slido application, uh, you know, whichever you are using, um, uh, Slido applications code you see on, on the live stream feed. Um, I, I'd prefer if those questions were sort of written in a chat mode. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm quite sure that is going to be the most convenient way of going about it. Uh, I will try to spend at least 30 minutes, at least a, hour, uh, a half of this hour. Uh, to Q&A uh, involving the audience. Uh, let me start by taking the opportunity to talk a little bit about your current work on, on vaccination programs. Well, in Europe and elsewhere around the world, we seem to be currently in the eye of the storm regarding availability and procurement and, and distribution of COVID vaccines. And some speakers, by the way, here at this conference today have referred to this as quite a mess that doesn't show the European Union in the best light. Well, what are your observations about how the European Union has met the vaccine challenge and the COVID challenge uh, more generally? 
Um, is it a crisis that will, when we look at it from the, from, uh, in hindsight, will it be a crisis that would have deepened the European integration, that would have driven it further, or that would have retarded, to some extent, European integration? What is your impression currently about this? So, uh, first of all, thank you very much, uh, Professor Bosch, for your introduction, and also thank you to the uh, Latvian Institute of International Affairs for the invitation. I understand that uh, I think we are linked also with similar institutes in uh, Lithuania and Estonia. For me, it's a great pleasure to be in touch with my friends from uh, the Baltic countries. I visited your country several times, and uh, I hope also to have uh, rather sooner than later uh, the opportunity to be again in your country and in your region that I very much admire for all the great efforts that we have been doing, namely when uh, your countries joined the European Union and the very constructive role that uh, uh, Latvia has always been playing. And I had so many friends in Latvia, including, I think he spoke today in the meeting, but unfortunately I could not follow my good friend Vladis Dombrovskis, a former prime minister, now vice president executive of the European Commission, and many others that I've met over the time uh, in Latvia and also in the countries in the region. So, uh, as you know, I'm uh, now um, chairman of Gavi. Gavi is Global Alliance for Vaccines, but only since uh, 1st of January. So I'm not at all an expert, but probably because of my experience in the European Commission and in global organizations, I was invited to present my candidature to do that. At, uh, I do it on a pro bono basis so to, to try to help that organization uh, to um, work in these very challenging circumstances. Because usually Gavi is about distribution of vaccines to children around the world. I mean, from uh, uh, polio to measles uh, to yellow fever, uh, Gavi has already vaccinated more than 822 million children. But because of that experience, Gavi was organizing a global response to this COVID-19 pandemic, creating COVAX. COVAX is basically an association between Gavi, CEPI, it's a similar organization, but more for development of vaccines, and the World Health Organization, and also with UNICEF. And what we are trying to do is to promote global vaccination in a more equitable manner because in the last pandemics, the reality was that the poor countries, they did not receive vaccines. They were just receiving at the end of the line. For instance, with H1N1, so the swine flu, they did not receive it. Now, uh, the situation of course is not perfect in terms of equity, but in reality, we have already distributed to 35 low-income countries or lower middle-income countries, 35, and uh, it started a little bit later than developed countries because developed countries, they bought most of the vaccines, including by the way, the European Union, more vaccines than uh, that will, will, will be effectively needed. Uh, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, uh, most countries in the developed world, they will have more vaccines than they actually need but our goal was to have it as much as possible in an equitable manner. And the reality is that 83 days after the first vaccine, the first jab happened in the United Kingdom, 
We saw the same happening in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, and now it's going on. So I'm confident that we are going to fulfill our mission, our global mission. Having said that, you asked me about Europe. Uh, what will be the result of this crisis for Europe <clears throat> uh, and for Europe integration? I think the jury is still out. We don't know yet uh, what is going to happen until the end of the crisis. Unfortunately, we are still in the middle of the crisis and we don't know when we'll be out because even I, I'm now in touch with scientists uh, every day and what they tell me is that they don't know even from an epidemiological point of view, because uh, there are new variants, there may happen things that are not very good in the future. But it's true that we hope to have uh, the most acute phase of the pandemic behind us before the end of the year, namely if the vaccination program continues. Vaccination is the best way to uh, control this virus and it's a it's a race between the virus and vaccines it's going to win let's hope the vaccines will win um, but we are still in the middle of that struggle now about the european union response there are two main areas one is let's say the economic response uh, and the other is the uh, vaccination or if you want the health uh, um, sanitary response in economic matters, I think the European Union is doing a good job. In fact, because of the experience of the past crisis, the financial crisis that I, at that time I was president of the European Commission, now the governments of Europe were ready to do now what they were not ready to do back in 2008. For instance, debt mutualization. It was not possible at that time. I insisted at that time for euro bonds. It was not now for the first time the European Commission is going to the markets uh, to borrow money on behalf of all the member states of the European Union, the 27 member states. And there is a big, some people call it bazooka, from a fiscal point of view, that will complement the efforts at national level. And the European Central Bank, that during the last crisis it took more or less four years to activate the uh, all means of intervention, the famous sentence by my good friend Mario Draghi, whatever it takes, it took four years, now it took less than four weeks for the European Central Bank to decide that they would respond with monetary, in monetary terms with um, um, a policy of no limits. That was very important for market confidence and for to avoid uh, a deep depression. The reality is that this um, uh, recession that we have in Europe, and it's the biggest since uh, um, at least 100 years, almost 100 years, in terms of the, the big uh, recession of the 30s, the reality that could be much worse. And we hope that uh, when the pandemic is controlled, growth can be coming faster. Uh, so it uh, will be more or less what people call a recovery in a V-shape. I hope there are conditions for that. So I think basically the European Union and its member states were reacting well. Now, about the sanitary issue, I know it's very easy to criticize the European Union. I'm no longer leading the European Commission or the European Union. So I'm speaking 
with full intellectual independence. Um, but of course, I, I remain a very committed European and pro-European. But the reality is that, first of all, the European Union has almost no competence in the field of health. There is not a European health service. There are national health services. So let's be honest. Who should be ready for a pandemic? Where is the responsibility? Well, is this clearly. the member state? Member state and in the United States the same. And in Canada and UK, the reality is, let's be blunt, our governments were not ready for this kind of pandemic. In the, when the governments make a list of risks, they put terrorism, they put a war, nuclear attacks, cybersecurity, they put also pandemics. But they were not prepared. There were no ventilators, there were no personal protective equipment, there was no uh, vaccine, but that is probably not their fault. Even if there was, after the last coronavirus pandemic, there were several proposals for to have a universal coronavirus vaccine, but it was not followed because of lack of funds. So the governments all over the world, almost all failed, with some exceptions in Asia, also because they had a more recent experience of this pandemic. They closed earlier and they were more or less reacting in a, a good way, uh, Asia Pacific region. But in Europe, United States, Latin America, in general, we were not ready. And this is a fault of the government not of the European Union. The European Union has almost no competence in the field of health, except matters that are linked to the market, like the European Medicines Agency, that by the way was in London, now it's in Amsterdam. Uh, but in public health, there was never, there was not even a budget for public health. And I remember when I was president of the commission, I launched some initiatives for networking in the field of public health. For instance, I've launched an initiative of public mental, of, um, of um, uh, mental health collaboration between our governments and some governments pushed back. They said, that's not the competence of the commission. This is our competence. So the European Union was not ready, but it, it, it had no reason to be ready because this is not the European Union, this is the member states. Okay, now, in face of this panic, of course, the governments uh, facing this challenge, they understood that the best thing was to be together. I know there is a lot of criticisms to the decision of asking the commission to act on behalf of the member states. But you know, politics is not the world of ideal results. Politics is the world of counterfactual. We have to think what would have been the opposite. Would European countries be better if instead of the European Commission making the deals, we saw 27 governments competing with the pharmaceutical companies and with the other countries? I can tell you, some of our countries will not have received one single vaccine by now. Yeah. They will not, because they will not have the, the weight. Uh, can we imagine Germany and France and Italy and uh, the Netherlands and Sweden and Spain and Poland competing, outbidding each other? That would have been a great disintegrative factor. So my answer to you is not perfect. There were some mistakes, and I know more or less which mistakes happened. 
also because of lack of experience of the European Commission. The European Commission has a lot of experience in trade, but there's no experience in negotiating with pharmaceutical companies, which is very different, very different. And now I'm in that world, I understand a little bit what's going on. So there were some mistakes, there were some delays, but I think that if European Union countries had not accepted to have a more or less coordinated position on facing the pandemic, not perfect, and some have decided to make their own um, deals, I believe the situation will be much, much worse, potentially very disruptive, by the way, not only for Europe, but for the rest of the world. And in fact, Europe is now um, going slower, slower than the United States and the United Kingdom in terms of vaccination, but, but much above uh, most parts of the world, including countries that are producing uh, many vaccines, like Russia, for instance. And Europe is going vaccination, even if we are 27 countries, we are going faster than many of our um, uh, partners or uh, competitors all over the world. So uh, I have a mixed opinion about the results so far, but I insist it would have been much more disruptive if there was not a, 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 at least an effort of a common approach. And I, I, I think that was the right decision to take. Mr. Barroso, thank you very much. I, I didn't even try to uh, interrupt you at any point because I think it was a very valuable sort of reflection. We, as, a, uh, as, as analysts and as, as um, uh, sort of opinion leaders, and, and we, this is about time we begin to conceptualize what has happened, right? Because if we have passed the uh, most acute phase of the crisis, it is about the time to begin to reflect on this. And I think it was a, a, a good uh, point to start this uh, conversation, which I, I'm quite sure is going to continue. Uh, for for the next year of what uh, what the consequences of this is and and uh, what lessons shall be learned uh, in, in terms of national policies and, and uh, um, putting them into a, a, a common gear so to speak with uh, with uh, European mechanisms and all together after all of the crises we have this reflection and it's about time to begin and I'm very happy that we begin to do that began to do that today. Um, our main topic for today, and by the way, um, I, ha I see a couple of questions already coming in. Please do send them over to me. Uh, I'll be happy to address them uh, to Mr. Barroso. Um, even though at the same time, I'd be happy to take the whole hour to myself as well. I, I, don't, I don't mind <laughs> that, that opportunity as well. So our main topic is Europe's future and place in the world. And I would phrase the question to you, Mr. Barroso, in, in, um, in this way. So you left office almost seven years ago, um, 2014, Europe, European Union as a global actor. In 2014 and in 2021, seven years have passed. Uh, what would your sort of main remarks on that be what 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 is the main trend you're observing here between the state of affairs in 2014 and the state of affairs in in 2021 uh, about the... what our ambition is about what we are actually doing about what our, our ambition is and mm -hmm. about how we are perceived 
by the other strategic actors in the world. Yes. Uh, I think the trend continues to be the same we had at that time. It is a trend of uh, further integration, but on a gradual mood. We are not going to have the United States of Europe in foreseeable future, but we are not going to see the disintegration of the European Union either. It will be something in between. And that has been my position already for decades. I've been saying that before I was president of the commission and after I left. So there is a trend. If you see the trend over the medium term, we are certainly now with more powers, the European Union, than we were before. Of course, there was one major issue. If you want, we can go deeper on that. It was Brexit. But I continue to think uh, that happened after I left. Uh, but I continue to think that the trend in Europe, at least continental Europe, is for more integration. And in fact, we are now in most areas with more powers at European level than we were before the, the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, I remember that because at that time I was in the Commission. And uh, there were more powers given to the European Commission, to the European Central Bank, to the, the creation of the European stability mechanism. Now we have 19 countries. Look, because you mentioned my time at the Commission, let me share precisely my personal impression. I became president of the Commission in 2004, and I was there until 2014. So 10 years. 2004 was the year of the big enlargement, when, by the way, your country also joined the European Union, 2004. Um, uh, you were, at that time, 15 countries. At the end of my mandate, we were 28 countries. So more, we, we, uh, uh, we, we almost doubled the members of the European Union, almost doubled. And uh, now, the uh, UK left so we're 27. Now we have in the Eurozone that some people were predicting the crumbling disintegration. We have now 19 members, which means we have now more countries in Euro, which is the second global currency in the world, second, ahead of the renminbi or, or any other uh, currency except the dollar, the US dollar. Uh, we have 19 countries. At that time when I became president, we were uh, just going from um, uh, 15 to uh, the enlargement. So, um, and by the way, in some areas now, we are seeing more what some people call geopolitical approach, more, um, they speak about strategic autonomy, they speak about a more, let's say, political approach. I remember when I was in the commission and the first or second time I used the word European interest, there is a need to defend the European interest. Some people criticized me in European Parliament saying, what is that interest? We are not like countries. We don't have interest. We have values. Completely naive. Completely naive. We have values, but we have interests. And so I believe because of what happened meanwhile, because of the increased frictions between the uh, um, United States and China, also because after what happened with the invasion of Ukraine by Russian accession of Crimea, and afterwards also with Trump, when President Trump took so decisions like leaving the Paris Climate Agreement and other 
decisions that were in fact uh, against the European Union, let's be frank. Uh, I think there is now in, in Europe what I call the European coming of age, the European Union becoming to be adult and understanding that while uh, most of us, at least that's my position, we want to remain very close to the United States of America because we are part of a transatlantic alliance. Most NATO countries are European countries and most European Union countries are NATO countries. So there is in fact a not perfect, but almost uh, perfect overlapping. The reality is that uh, I believe the European Union now, uh, and Merkel has said it uh, some years ago when Trump announced that he was going to leave the Paris Climate Agreement, maybe it is time for us Europeans to take our future in our own hands. And, but that's going to be gradual. And that's very important to understand because that's a common mistake that many people do about Europe, including, I, I'm sorry to say, academics and analysts. They try to look at European Union with the model of a state. Like if comparing with the United States or China or Russia, but we are not a state, as simple as that. It's another thing. European Union is not a country. So if you compare the European Union with a country, of course, there are always problems in terms of cohesion or in terms of level of integration. Even if sometimes you can see countries that achieve a higher degree of polarization than the European Union itself with 27 countries, as we have seen recently, by the way. But, but that's a mistake, a complete mistake, a, a misperception. It's also a mistake to think that the European Union is an organization like, let's say, the United Nations or the OSCE or the Council of Europe, because we are not that. We are something different. And we have to understand the specific nature of the European Union and understand that it will never be a finished building. If you want an image, a representative image, we are a scaffolding. It's something that is being built and it's being built progressively. Sometimes there will be some pushback, there will be some resistance, but at the end of the day, today, the European Union is globally more relevant than it was. For instance, when I was foreign minister in the 90s, at that time, we were 12 countries only in the European Union. And I was participating in the European Council because at that time, the foreign ministers were in the European Council. Now it's only the heads of state and government. And there are some people in Europe, if you go to Brussels, that they think, oh, those were the golden days of the European community. They don't know what they are saying because half of Europe was under totalitarian communism, was occupied or more or less under control. So where, the, where was Europe better back then? Or was Europe better before Portugal and Spain and Greece joined? Before that, we were dictators as well from the right wing. So come on, on in general terms, the European countries are much better now than they were 10, 20, 30, or 40 years ago. In all matters, economically, um, uh, socially, educationally, culturally. Now, does it mean that we are living in the most perfect of worlds? No, we have many, many challenges, and I know some of them. And there are some risks also inside the European Union. Having said that, I draw one conclusion. If we as Europeans want to count in the world, and that, then I can share my experience with you as well. 
I was, for instance, in all the G20 meetings from 2008 to 2014. Who takes decisions globally? Where is power globally? That's the point we have to understand. Where is power? Not, I'm not speaking now about idealism. I'm speaking about power. Power in the world is basically today in the United States and China, basically. Uh, and to some extent, Russia still is, but without the, um, without the same, very far from that level, in military terms, an important power. It was a mistake when Obama said that R Russia was a regional power. It was a huge mistake to say it. Having said that, Europe, I can tell you, there are no decisions taken in the, in the G20 without the European Union being part of it. Because when Europeans are together, they can compete in the same league of the United States or of China. Without that, even the biggest countries in Europe and the more important uh, economically, of course, Germany, and France is very important also politically. By the way, now it is the only country in Europe that in the European Union that is member of the Security Council, a permanent member of the United Nations before we had also the UK. Even France or, or Germany are not in the same league of power as are the United States of America, our allies, or, or China. So this is why I believe the trend will continue to be one of integration, but it will be slow, it will be frustrating, it will be incremental, it will be gradual, and there may be some moments of uh, failure, but overall, I continue to think the trend is for more, not less European Union. Um, you use the term European coming of age uh, and a gradual process. Um, and I, and I, I think you made an extremely relevant point that we do make the mistake sometimes as analysts and, and academics as well, that we treat <coughs> the European, we demand from the European Union results as if it was a country, uh, as a state, but it is not, right? So we should apply probably a different um, sort of framework for analysis of all of this. But nevertheless, uh, bearing all that in mind, mm, what do you see as sort of the practical signs of that gradual pr process actually moving forward? Is it, um, because the things that you mentioned, um, they are conceptual. They are uh, they 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 reflect the the thinking process, right? Uh, and all of that has happened over the last few years very actively. Um, you know, encouraged by rise of you know chi Chinese and, and American uh, um, competition and Donald Trump and, and Russian behavior and and all of these things. But at the same time, my question is whether that coming of age where which what you would mention as the sort of the uh the most noticeable practical things in which we can observe this coming of age apart from the intellectual process right in terms of policy no so, uh, many years i understand your point we are still at the beginning of that process but for instance now, when climate change, no doubt that it's the European Union that has been leading that globally. It's not the United States, it's not China, certainly not Russia. So climate change and energy policy 
in terms of shaping the future, it has been the European Union. In fact, it was my commission back in 2007, 2008 that made the first proposals. Then we had the Copenhagen summit where the United States, they left the meeting with us to go and make a compromise with uh, Russia, China, India, Brazil, and South Africa, the BRICS, because they said we were too ambitious. Then uh, Trump left the Paris Climate Agreement, and now President Biden once uh, came back. And in fact, we are trying to make something concrete. So an example where the European Union is trying to lead, but it's going to be difficult to lead, but it's trying to lead. And now, in fact, there was an evolution also in China. And uh, now they are also committing to some goals, even if they are not so ambitious as the European ones. But at least they are, for the first time, committing to ambitious uh, uh, or, or more precise targets. Now, where I see some evolution is on the, the idea of um, having, for instance, now relocalization in Europe of some industries. And that was also a consequence of the pandemic. Because the reality is, I'm, I'm absolutely against protectionism, but I believe we should not be naive. I believe Europe has to keep some of its uh, resources in Europe. Uh, if not, in global competition will be uh, like now, we, we were in a position where we were, we had some not, we're not producing in Europe some of the materials from, from aspirin to personal protective equipment. And I know what I'm telling you, I know a company in Asia, that by the way, it's a multinational uh, a company uh, originated from Australia and their suppliers, not only they did not sell them what they wanted to, to sell to us in Europe, but they increased the price one day from 1000%. This cannot happen. So now I believe trade, competition, regulation like the data protection, another matter where we are leading globally. It was my commission also, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation was put forward by my commission, was approved many years later. That is a matter where I believe we are leading with the best system of data privacy globally. Um, so I think now there is a trend in Europe to look at these matters more politically and not just technocratically. You see, I think this is a progress because that was not the mood, certainly not the mood in the Brussels bubble some years ago, where there was some kind of um, uh, what I call, I'm simplifying for the sake of argument, of course, and you understand that, but there was what I call the Boy Scout or the Girl Scout spirit. And, uh, in, uh, and if you want to be a power globally, it's great that you have values like the values that we have from human rights, even dignity, I mean, uh, democracy, rule of law, all these principles, uh, Article 2nd of Lisbon Treaty, you know them by heart, I'm sure. But we have to be very determined defending our interests. So, and now there is also something going on in the field of defense. It's very small, but the idea of PESCO, it's something that is going on. Uh, some cooperation, not among, not, not among all member states. And that's why I believe and as I've told you, I'm not no longer in the European Union or the European Commission, but I believe the resilience of the European Union is higher than most people acknowledge. And precisely look at the financial crisis, because that I, I was living it existentially. I remember that time, most economists, the so-called market sentiment was betting 
on Greece leaving the euro. You remember at that time, Greece, and and also the collapse of of uh, of the euro, and we 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 were able to resist to all these pressures. So now we are under a new pressure, this pandemic. Yes, but I believe there is sufficient resilience in the European Union to overcome this. That's what I mean by the coming of age. But it's far from perfect. Personally, I would like to be to see a much more <clears throat> coherent European Union, certainly. Uh, but I don't think uh, those who are predicting the demise of European Union are, are right. Uh, I, I think they are making, uh, once again, the mistake they have made <clears throat> in 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, 12, when they were predicting the collapse of the euro or, or, or some kind of two Europes completely divided and they were wrong. And by the way, they have not yet apologized. They have not yet apologized because some of these are not problems of analysis of, um, analysis of uh, uh, models. Of, uh, I don't criticize the academics because they are comparing with the state. It's, it's, uh, you, as an analyst, you can compare. I was, I was professor teaching comparative politics. You can compare whatever you want. The problem is when from a political point of view, you compare creating a frustration you see, because we have the guys who are against the European Union, the euro skeptics or europhobes. Okay, it's perfectly natural, and we can. I, I accept that. No one has to be forced to support the European Union. They have the the problem for me. The real problem, political, is those who are for the European Union, and they are not defending it. They are always frustrated because they conceive a kind of ideal Europe. That will not happen, at least not in the foreseeable future. And then they create a, a real problem of, of frustration, of uh, uh, disillusionment. Uh, that that is part of the problem we have today. And and you know, any political project, and I believe the European Union beyond beyond the economic uh, logic is also a political project. Any political project needs a political support political support. Without it, we will not survive. And that's why I think it's important to explain to our people, to our population, that we are not a state, that we are a, a special union where we share part of our sovereignty, we pool our sovereignties, and that if they want to count something more in the world, they have to accept this kind of, of pooling of sovereignty. And this is my, my, my political remark. So I did not mean to criticize those who want to compare. We can, in fact, compare the European Union with states or with international organizations, with whatever we want to care. But from a practical point of view, it can create an illusion. And illusions are bad, I think. I'm, I'm still one of those who believe rational uh, arguments are better than irrational ones. Mr. Barroso, let me switch now to uh, to the questions that are uh, reaching me from from the different platforms uh, in in chat rooms, and um, since uh, since this is Baltic EU conversations, I, I think it is unavoidable that uh, uh, that that at least part of those questions are related to to our country in the east. That is a, a big factor uh, in this part of the world as well in terms of geopolitics. Um, you left office in, in 2014 at a time uh, when, when the invasion of Ukraine and, and all that crisis uh, was, was very fresh, right? 
and, and, and time has passed. Um, do you see signs of the European Union coming of age also in, in that question of, uh, of developing a more or less coherent approach uh, to our relationship with Russia? Uh, I sort of uh, rephrase uh, a bunch of questions that are related to this theme here. Um, difficult question. Um, I think we are not yet there, but it also does not only depend on us. <laughs> Depends on the other side. And in fact, Russia has not yet defined, from my point of view, a completely coherent position towards Europe. And they are, um, some people believe it's a, uh, they are great chess players. They are doing a great strategy. I really believe they are not. <clears throat> I believe they are making a real mistake. Because if I was Russian, if I was a Russian leader, and if I was comparing the position where I'm today, and I was 20 years before, compared with China, that is the big, the, the real issue they should be facing geopolitically, I would be worried. Very, very worried. So, uh, in fact, if you look once again strategically, let's take 20, 30 years. I remember 30 years ago, China was not even an issue in economic terms. I remember well in the European Council when we discussed in 92, 93, it was Jacques Delors, the president of the Commission, the, the global competition against Europe. It was the uh, United States, it was Japan. It was a little bit Russia, and it was the so-called Asian tigers, Korea, Singapore, and China was not there. Today, China is, according to some statistics, the biggest economy in the world. Not, of course, in dollar terms, but in purchasing power parity. And if not, they will be in the not near future. And this is the biggest challenge, I think, for Russia. <laughs> the real challenge for Russia. By the way, I, I said that very often to Mr. Putin. I met Putin 25 times in my life. Because at that time, we had every, every uh, year, we had um, twice, a week, twice a year summits. But besides the bilateral summits, we had also the G, G8. At that time, Russia was part of G8. We, had the, we started the, G, the G20 at level of heads of state and government in 2008. And also, I met him when he was prime minister. And, I were, uh, and then we... Present Prime Minister. So just just a very short intervention before you go on. This is very interesting. Please do go on, but just a very short inter, uh, intervention. Did he keep you wait a lot? No, no. All right. Interesting. No, never, never, no. He usually does that, but no, no, no. no. He but made please do go on about that. But uh, but uh, but Putin, um, I'm, I think he made some evolution, or uh, not necessarily positive. But he was not the same at the beginning, at, at the end of, uh, of those 10 years I was interacting with, with, uh, with him. Uh, but uh, one thing I know, I can remember, maybe of interest to you, one day when there was this Druzba pipeline, you remember the issue of Druzba? Myself and Merkel, we had a very tough discussion with President Putin. It was in Samara during a summit. And uh, I'm not going now into details, but I remember that he was mentioning at that time that uh, your countries and Lithuania, at that time it was specifically Lithuania, was a real threat to Russia. And he came with some historic arguments. 
Okay, uh, uh, that was, uh, I think I understood a little bit about uh, his position at then. I mean, I said, look, Vladimir, if you think Lithuania or European countries are really a threat to you, to your territory, you are completely mistaken. I will not be concerned with that. I think you should have other concerns more than Europe. But okay, they, they have decided to not to go the way of reforms. Uh, and I, I, I think it's a, a, a real mistake for Russia. Russia has tried many years, many times to be, to modernize itself from, of course, historic terms from Peter II, Peter the Great to other occasions, and they were failing. And now they are failing again, which is, I think, a mistake. Now, for Europe, what we have to define uh, as a position, I believe, with, with Russia, I think, for instance, is to have a position of principle on matters where we do not agree, to be firm on those matters, to be very explicit. And I remember I had very tough discussions with Putin, including on, on energy matters, very tough. And by the way, we did not accept uh, the, the, the invasion of Ukraine. That's why we took the measures of sanctions and, uh, that are still valid, by the way. Most people said the European Union will not be able to agree. I remember that European Council, when we took that decision, several countries were opposing the sanctions, but at the end they've accepted and they are still there. They are still there. Uh, and by the way, and they did not want us to make the agreement with Ukraine, but we made the agreement with Ukraine, including the DCFTA, Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement with Ukraine. At time, many people, including some of our friends in the West, said it's better not to do it, not to provoke Russia. But we have the agreement with Ukraine. So I think it's um, uh, it's still it's still not completely structured our position, but I think it should be a, um, a position where we are firm on matters of principle at the same time when we cooperate with other matters with Russia, because Russia is our neighbor and Russia is the biggest country on the planet in geographical terms. By the way, it's Europe. Russia is part of Europe from my point of view, uh, not of the European Union, but Russia is certainly part of the European civilization. And we cannot conceive the European civilization without Russia. It's a complete mistake also that some people make. It's a part of the European civilization. And so we have to establish a dialogue with them that uh, is open on some issues, but it is very firm on others. And the balance sometimes is not right. For instance, as we saw recently, there was not the right, the right balance. Uh, and, uh, and of course, I regret that because I think only the position of firmness we will be respected as European Union. Um, there's another series of uh, uh, questions uh, to you that I will try to once again to compress into, uh, into my own question. Um, this, is, this, this was referring back to the uh, Munich Security Conference uh, a month ago um, of, uh, of European leaders uh, sort of meeting uh, with, uh, with uh, Biden and uh, exchanging views about uh, the future of transatlantic relationship. And uh, I think the question that uh, many had after hearing what uh, President Biden had to say and about uh, when when the analysts observed the reactions by um, 
German Chancellor and, and the British Prime Minister and the French President. Um, I think the the big unknown or the the big question mark uh, was okay. We we want to leave the four last years behind a little bit and about, but and we you know Europeans welcome the new administration and the and they're ready for cooperation. But at the same time, the big issue is China, right? How to formulate the relationship there? There is there seems to be. A, uh, a new expectation uh, from our American partners with regard uh, of the conduct of, of, of relations with China, how to, how to structure that. Uh, and, and on the part of, 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 of the European leaders of, a, of France and Germany, obviously, once again, there are almost 30 countries and almost 20. If there are 30 countries, then maybe there are 50 different opinions, right, on, on how to do this. So the diversity of opinions, obviously, but the uh, but the reaction of uh, of of the Germans and and the French uh, seem to have been uh, okay. We we don't really feel uh, certain that uh, that that our policy with regard to China should be entirely sort of uh, subordinated to uh, to American vision of what that strategy should be. So how do you see that triangle developing? This is. This is, I think, looking further into the 21st century, that is going to be uh, uh, a crucial question about how to figure out uh, what is our relationship in, within the transatlantic alliance, within, within the West, uh, and how to, uh, how to conduct that policy with regard to China, what, what that strategy consists uh, of. That is a very important question. Let me just tell you the following. Uh, myself, I'm an Atlanticist. My country is a founding member of NATO, and, uh, and I'm an Atlanticist. Uh, now, coming to, to China, um, China is uh, one of the two most important powers in the world today. So it's not possible to isolate China. Uh, so we have to establish some kind of relationship with China. Um, so the, I believe the European Union will most likely, um, of course, keep the preferential relationship with the United States of America, no doubts about it. And if there is a complete decoupling, if there is a real, let's say, uh, confrontation, full-scale confrontation between the United States and Europe, I have no doubts that Europe will be with the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, I said the United States and China. If there is a complete confrontation uh, without limits, Let's not speak about the word war, but okay. If there is a conflict uh, completely open, um, which by the way, it's not yet completely clear what will be exactly the, the, the position of the United States. Not yet. Uh, I think basically they will continue the position of President Trump. That's probably the only matter where Democrats and Republicans agree in the United States. I don't see any other. Uh, any, but uh, differently from that, um, I believe there will be some nuance um, coming uh, from the United States in the relationship with China. Um, so let, we have to see exactly. But if there will be a kind of a open, absolute confrontation between the United States and, and China, I think Europe will be on the side of the United States. I'm convinced, including 
so-called neutral countries, countries that are not NATO countries. They will be there. But I think most European countries do not want this to happen because they understand that China is also important for global growth and including for European interests in terms of exports and other. Um, and so probably, probably what's going to happen, but who am I to say it? But you ask my opinion, probably your opinion will try to be like the time zones, <laughs> clo clo prob probably closer to New York uh, than to Beijing, but in the middle. Um, uh, European Union countries, at least most of them, not only France and Germany, most of them do not want, a, let's say, complete open confrontation with China. They, they are not to, trying to, to do it. There is an interesting situation in the UK. The UK was before the biggest champion. I remember at the time of David Cameron and Osborne, I remember, they were criticizing the commission when we launched anti-dumping process against China, solar panels. They were saying the commission was protectionist. They were more Chinese than the Chinese, the British government at that time. They were more aggressive uh, on, uh, because they were completely in favor because they wanted to be the biggest friends of China uh, in Europe. Now they changed completely, partly because of what happened in Hong Kong, partly because of uh, the positions of President Trump before. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a complete change from one place to the other. Okay, they have the right to do it. But the majority of European countries have been not so extreme. There are points where they are critical, very critical of China, including issues of human rights or the situation, uh, some specific situations. But there are others where they want to keep the channels open, including in, in trade and also to work with China in matters like climate change or other matters. So I think the landing zone will probably be this one. So the Americans trying to have a tougher position, the Europeans also with a tougher position, but uh, not exactly the same of the United States. That's my, my, my assessment. And let me tell you an example that I know from experience. When I, we were meeting the European, the Chinese during the time I was the European Commission. I don't know if you remember, but we had basically two problems with China, two uh, controversial, so irritants, as we usually say, but big irritants. It was arms embargo that was established after Tiananmen and that America and us, we have established, and it was the market economy status. We, the Chinese wanted us to recognize their market economy status. We never gave them market economy status, never. I had many meetings with the prime minister, the president of China. They were always pushing and we have not, but we have not made a big deal about it. We have not attacked China. We said to them, with all respect, you are a great market, but you don't feel in our criteria of what is a market economy. And there were five, in fact, five technical criteria. So I think we can be firm with China when we want to defend our interests without going for an overall uh, over confrontation with China. Uh, I believe in this world we are living today, more than ever, it's very important, very unpredictable that we keep channels open and that we try, look at this, we started our conversation on vaccination, public health, pandemic. Of course, this what we are seeing today, competition on vaccines, and this is not good. We need to have, uh, to understand 
that we have our national interests. We are patriots, at least I am patriot. I love my country. But we have to think also globally about the mankind and, and in, in Europe about the European Union. So I think there are some global public goods like public health or uh, climate protection or peace, above all peace, above all peace, but also um, uh, financial stability, uh, fight against terrorism. On these matters, I think it's important that we keep some level of trust between the main players. And so I'm not in favor of a complete, let's say, decoupling uh, with China um, or, or with Russia. Uh, I think we have to be extremely firm on matters of our interests, our values, but and firm, sometimes much firmer than we have been in the past, but not, not decoupling uh, the international order because basically this order was created by us. By us, I mean the so-called West multilateral order was created after the Second World War by the United States above all, but also Europe, because we have learned, I think, the lessons of the terrible two world wars that in fact were essentially European wars that afterwards became uh, global wars. Mr. Barroso, uh, we have, we're at the end of this. Uh, there are still a couple of questions that I don't have the time and I apologize to those who submitted that, but uh, um, let me conclude on, uh, on, a, on a bit of a different note. I, I really want to ask you this, and uh, we have just a minute. Um, do you think it is more, more or less fun uh, to be the commission president now compared to when you were there 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, obviously every era has its own pluses and minuses, but uh, in terms of political counterparts you have to work with, in, in terms of challenges, what do you say, thank God I'm not there now, or you say, damn, I wish I was there now? <laughs> Look, uh, that's a very personal question, no, because uh, frankly, I will, I, I'm very, uh, if I had, I'm going to answer like that, if I was now 15 years ago, uh, uh, if I had to take another a decision, am I going to accept to be running for president of the commission, I would say yes, no doubts about it. No doubts. But now I've done it, so I think 10 years is enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, having said that, I just want to call your attention to something that I think it is important. There is what I call an optical effect. Um, because it seems to me the subtext that was in your question, maybe I'm seeing wrong, was that some of the people now, it's more dangerous and more difficult than before. Um, with some exceptions, with Angela Merkel. I was working with Angela Merkel. She's a friend. By the way, when I became president of the commission, she was leader of the opposition. She was in the opposition. We are from the same political family, EPP. She was one of the persons who encouraged me to, to accept going to the commission. So I was there still with Schroeder. But after all, I almost all the time was with her. And, uh, and, and some people at that time were saying, oh, the big, big times, great times were the times of Mitterrand and Kohl. What leaders, great leaders. Now people say, Merkel is going to leave, oh, a great leader. She's a... Leaders look better in the past than in the present, usually. <laughs> what, what I mean, well, that everything is relative. I know that today, I know there are many problems in Europe. I know some of them very well and, uh, and challenges. I do not pretend to underestimate it. And I don't want to give you the idea and your public that, uh, okay, 
this guy is so pro-European that he does not uh, consider. No, no, I know the problems very well. Internal problems, divisions, the atmosphere between governments. I know that well. But I just want to ask people to put things in perspective. Uh, is there any other group of countries in the world, any other, that is something similar in terms of integration like the European Union? If you look at the UN, the votes of the countries, it's by far the biggest caucus in, Europe, in the United Nations, by far, the European Union countries, when they vote together with the candidate countries and the countries like Norway or Switzerland and others that are not members, but they are very... So in fact, I believe we underestimate our strengths as Europeans. And so I believe I could do this now, um, but, um, but I'm not candidate to it. <laughs> I've done already that before. But certainly, uh, maybe now it will be more interesting because right. the, the challenge is going on besides the financial crisis. That was really a great, a great course in crisis, I can tell you. Uh, a great and intensive course. But, uh, but what's going on now globally between the United States, China, uh, Russia, it's all, always difficult to manage a situation like the Russian one or other uh, the instability, namely in Asia. Asia, for me, it's the real problem in the world. If you, uh, somehow, if you look at what's happening there in terms of conflict, it's not only China, Japan, uh, China, India, uh, China, Vietnam, I mean, uh, uh, the two Koreas, the lack of trust, the lack of trust there is there, it's really amazing. Uh, worse than Europe. In Europe, we have our quarrels, I call them family quarrels, some of them we don't like it, but my God, compared with the level of antagonism you see in Asia, we are in a pretty good situation. <laughs> I mean, uh, Europe of the European Union. So that's why everything is relative and I just want to ask people when they think about Europe to put things in a comparative perspective, but it should be historically historically and also geographically with other parts of the world and from that point of view i think we are uh, making some progress slow incremental progress but progress all right um we're unfortunately out of time um i wish we had a couple of more hours uh to uh, to to go on about this uh, because this was uh, this is so frank and, and honest and forthcoming from your side to, uh, to participate in this. And it, it was an honor and a, and a pleasure. So thank you very much. Uh, I, I conclude here uh, with, uh, uh, with a wish to uh, when the times will be normal once again to, to come to Lisbon and enjoy the weather, uh, <laughs> hopefully. And um, I, I now uh, give the floor to Professor Sprouds to conclude the conference. Thank you very much, Mr. Barroso. Thank you. Thank you. It is. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I think it has been a privilege uh, to you and to all of us to have Mr. Barroso today in concluding part. Mr. Barroso, thank you so much for your, I would say, very forceful and ins ins insights and experience and advice. We highly, highly appreciate it. And uh, I certainly say we cannot expect a better concluding part as this one. So we very much hope exactly that we, we could continue this for a couple of hours today. 
but certainly at least for a couple of hours next year. And we very much hope to host you in Riga, to welcome you to Riga. So, so please, the invitation is open for next year and for coming years again. Thank you. Exactly, as Mr. Bosch, as Eddie was saying, so so frank, so uh, thought-provoking, I think it was really joy. So thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you very uh, much, Professor Spruz. May I, I have now another commitment. May I say goodbye to you now? Here? Absolutely. So okay. thank you. Thank, thank you. you all the best. So and all the best for you and for your institute. All the best for Latvia. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And to conclude, uh, short conclusions after the long day, so I think all of us can draw our own conclusions. Uh, so I would say, and I would continue a bit to what Mr. Barroso was saying, so let's appreciate what we have. In the process, of course, we're facing a lot of challenges, a lot of opportunities at the same time. I think a lot of challenges and, and, and uh, what we still have to achieve and do. Uh, I would identify that, of course, it is the continuous diversity management. As in the beginning of discussion, you saw there is a difference. In Latvia, there is still a winter. In Portugal, already it's a spring and almost summer is coming. So we are diverse uh, member states with different perceptions, with different angles, with different policies, with different approaches. And of course, to manage this diversity is quite a complicated and complex task. Uh, we all the time have to adjust. Uh, and again, it, as was mentioned, pandemic, we've been adjusting for different kinds of crises, but all crises somehow are new in many ways. We always prepare for the crisis of yesterday, not today or tomorrow. It's much more difficult to expect exactly what we will have. So the adjustment process is taking place all the time. I think also continuous building of solidarity and trust and solidarity within the EU, among the member states, but also the trust and solidarity with outside world. And I think again, vaccination policy, uh, vaccination diplomacy is one case um, sort of in a, uh, in a more uh, wider trend. So thank you so much. I think also this event has been a solidarity building, diversity management, and also adjustment in terms of how we proceeded in terms of virtual the format. And certainly it will be continued next year. We very much hope it will be in person that we'll be able to welcome Mr. Barroso and other distinguished speakers uh, to Riga and to exchange in a, in a in, um, lively and so provoking debate. At the same time, I think it was excellent also the cooperation among the capitals of the Baltic states. So we are grateful to our partners. We are absolutely grateful and appreciative to our distinguished speakers who were willing to take part, our distinguished moderators who were moderating the panels. Uh, I would uh, repeat also that, of course, partners are instrumental and indispensable part of success of also the Baltic EU conversations. I would also personally, of course, the list could be long, but I would underline the importance that they, in practical terms in cooperation with Andris Kuzniks from the Com European Commission representation. Um, the number of people in Latvian parliament, and again, particular thanks to Eva Deze for all practical uh, activities. I would also thank my own team, the team of the Latvian Institute of International Affairs, particularly Carlos Bukowskis, um, Cynthia Broca, Alexandra Falkova. But as I mentioned, I think the list of international partners and people whom we can thank, of course, could be continued and implicit, implicitly in the names are on, on the list, absolutely. 
So thank you once more so much for the, the participation. Thanks also to all of those who listen, who raised the questions. And we hope uh, that we meet uh, next year in person already after pandemic, at least when we'll be able to prove that there is solidarity and solidarity works in EU and we're able to deal and cope with uh, the pandemic. And I think there are uh, a lot of positive signs of it. And uh, I can formally say that the sixth edition of the Baltic EU conversations uh, is closed. So thank you so much and let's meet next year. Bye bye.